Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, John Larson Interviews, RFM. It has now been 10 years since I appeared on John Larson's famous podcast titled Mormon Expression and was interviewed by none other than its host, John Larson. This happened back in 2010. The subject matter is bullseyes in the Book of Mormon, and I am representing the pro side defending the Book of Mormon, and John Larson is representing the anti-side, the anti-Mormon side, critical of the Book of Mormon. And the reason this whole interview came about is because John Larson wanted to do a podcast about the Book of Mormon, and he wanted to have an apologist come onto his podcast and defend the Book of Mormon, and then he would have a discussion with the apologist and see where that led. But as hard as John Larson tried, he could not find an apologist to save his soul who was willing to come on his podcast and actually be questioned by John Larson. It appears that all the apologists that he was trying to contact felt very secure about their position when they were in a forum where they couldn't be asked follow-up questions, but when it came to actually having the courage of their convictions and going on to John Larson's podcast to talk about the Book of Mormon, that's when their knees started to get a little bit shaky. As for me, I was not an apologist anymore by any means. I had done most of that back in the 1980s, and this is 2010 once again, when we're having this interview. So because John Larson could not find anybody who was a real apologist, who really believed that the Book of Mormon was really an ancient historical document and really believed that the evidence in support of that could stand up to the withering scrutiny of John Larson, I was willing to leap into the breach and serve as the token Mormon apologist for that purpose. Now, what ended up happening was that John Larson and I had a very, very nice, cordial, courteous discussion. He was an absolute gentleman. He didn't try and grill me in cross-examination. He was willing to listen to what I had to say, to accept it where it sounded reasonable to him, and to push back courteously where he thought maybe it was a bit weak. I, for my part, felt that I tried to do the same thing in discussing with him, with the result that it was not an acrimonious debate, but it was a respectful exchange of differing opinions. And it was, in fact, in that sense, perhaps a model of what this kind of discourse should look like. So I recently got in contact with John Larson and asked him if I could play this interview that happened back in 2010 on his podcast on my podcast. And once again, ever the gentleman, he said, absolutely, you can do that on one condition. (laughs) And the condition was that at some future time, that he and I get together and talk about Mormonism once again and see where it is that both of us are now, 10 years later, 10 years after the first time and only time so far that we have ever done a podcast together. So here, on the 10th anniversary, I'm going to play for you this podcast. It was number 660 of the Mormon Expression podcast, recorded 10 years ago. I'll be interested in finding out what my listeners think about this discussion. Play the tape. Okay, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. And tonight, I'm joined by um, who I would consider my my favorite Sunday school teacher in the entire church, um, the one and only consigliere. I can say. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, 
Now, I, I get all my Sunday school information from you from um, a favorite meeting place of ours on the Mormon Apologetics and Discussion Board. Yes, and those posts may be fewer and further between now since I was officially released yesterday. Um, not under duress, I hope. No, I don't think there was anything about that. I'm surprised I managed to last for four years. <laughs> well, four years, you cover the whole curriculum. There's nothing else to say. I did. I said everything I wanted to say. <laughs> well, maybe give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself. Okay. I am a member of the church now for 32 years. I joined fresh out of high school back in 1978. So I was baptized in June by my best friend in high school who was a member of the church, and I had known him for several years, and he'd been trying to make inroads with me over the years about Mormonism, bringing up subjects and inviting me to different things, and finally, I guess, the circumstances were right, and I I requested to hear the missionary discussions, and I did listen to them in approximately 10 days and was baptized, and I've been a member of the church ever since. So you are the, the, the formidable golden contact. I am. I'm exactly that. I didn't realize it at the time, but after I got on my mission, which I served in Japan from 79 to 81, I looked back on that experience and I realized that those missionaries went home every night, got down on their knees, and thanked God to have me as an investigator. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, so tonight, um, we're going to talk about bullseyes. Now, this is one of your favorite posting com, um, content, and I've always enjoyed your podcast. I mean, your, you know, podcast. I've enjoyed your posts on that. Um, maybe explain to us what a bullseye is. Okay. Well, I will tell you first off that I use bullseyes in the titles to a lot of those posts, not because, um, I don't think they're bullseyes. I don't want you to think I'm cheating or anything, but I noticed over time that if I would put bullseye in a post, it would get more attention to the thread than if I didn't put bullseye in it. So I would frequently put those in just to get people's curiosity up and get them to look at the thread. But a bullseye, I think, is um, it's a hit that the Book of Mormon, in this case we're talking about the Book of Mormon tonight, uh, makes a connection it makes with the ancient world from which it claims to come. Because the Book of Mormon, everybody knows, came off the press in 1830 in New York. And I think that there are two main groups of thought about it. Either it came from early 19th century upstate New York, or it came from a much older time in a much different environment, from a much different culture with all sorts of different things about it. So a bullseye, from my point of view, would be where it makes a connection or a hit on something from the old culture that it claims to come from, something that would not necessarily be readily explainable in any other way. Yes, and this is not just something that you made up. I mean, um, this has been an ongoing pursuit of farms for a lot of years. Yes, it has. And farms came to, into existence just about the time that I was joining the church, though I didn't discover them till after I'd gotten back from my mission. And I was, um, for whatever reason, I was one of these uh, members who wanted to learn about the church, and I wanted to learn what the answers were, with a capital T and a capital A. What are the answers? And so I studied that, and I studied that, 
And uh, frankly, one of my very first encounters, now this would be my very first encounter with uh, anti-Mormon literature, if I can call it that, was before I went on my mission. At about the same time that I joined the Mormon church, my brother joined the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and that led to a lot of very interesting discussions between us. And um, one time he came home from the Kingdom Hall and he had brought home uh, uh, this, um, well, it's a pamphlet. It wasn't even a pamphlet. It was something that was made at someone's home and then put into a loose-leaf binder. And it was called the Mormon File and was stenciled in pencil on front. And he gave that to me, thought it would be a good idea if I read it. So I read through it and I was shocked at the things that I was reading in this. These are things that the missionaries had not told me about. The two things that I remember really bothering me the most that were in there were about Brigham Young teaching, some crazy idea about Adam being God, <laughs> and the second thing being that there's over 3,000 mistakes in the Book of Mormon that had to be corrected later. I felt horribly, I felt very dark inside when I read this, and I thought, well, of course I'm feeling dark inside. I'm finding out that this true religion I was sold is a sham, and I was never told this by the missionaries, and I felt uh, betrayed, and I felt dark and nasty inside, and I didn't go to church the next Sunday, and I thought, well, that'll show them. What it did was it made me feel even worse inside, and I thought, what am I doing here? What am I going to do about this situation that I'm in? Strangely, it never occurred to me to call my best friend who baptized me into the church and ask him about it. For some reason, I felt ashamed that I had come upon this information. But I went to church that night because I felt so bad about not going to the regular meetings. I went to a special fireside they were having that night. And it was, uh, this was down in Puyallup, Washington. Uh, some guy was going around and giving talks about the Book of Mormon, and mainly it was in order to show these little models that he had made of different artifacts from the Book of Mormon. He'd spent some time in his shop and made some gold plates and made, uh, obviously not of real gold, but uh, a model of the gold plates as they were described. He'd made a, a ship that Nephi had made and the Jaredite barges and Leahona, and he passed these things around while he was talking about the different stories from the Book of Mormon associated with them. I still felt really bad. I felt a little bit better. You know, I'm in church. There's friends, people I know. I feel better. But I hadn't shared this with anybody. And toward the end of his presentation, he stops. He looks around the room. We're in the Relief Society room. There aren't that many people present. And he asks, are there any non-members here? Nobody raises their hand. And he says, well, I don't usually talk about this, but, you know, there are some people who criticize the Book of Mormon and talk about there's been over 3,000 changes made in it. And then he went on to explain that the vast majority of, the, of these, he probably said all of them, <laughs> but um, that these are grammatical spelling errors, things like that, that have been corrected over time to make it conform to modern usage. And I just felt this huge burden lift from me. And I felt the hand of God is in this and in my getting off my butt and going to church to this fireside. So that was my first experience with anti-Mormon literature. After that, I wanted to find the answers to everything. And so I began a process of studying on my mission, uh, after my mission, and basically continuing for around 10, 15 years, even to a lesser degree up to the present time, though my interests in Mormonism have gone in other places than strictly apologetics. 
trying to find out and see what it is that supports the Book of Mormon, what qualifies as a bullseye, trying to wean out those things that have been claimed as bullseyes, but really maybe don't pass the smell test, at least not as far as I'm concerned. And under that heading, I would put everything ever said by Einar Erickson, <laughs> whose tapes I did listen to, and very exciting speaker, but then I've listened to him more recently, and I'm listening to him with the knowledge that I have now and thinking, oh, geez, that doesn't mean that. That means something completely different. Before we get into the um, particular bullseyes, um, do you want to talk about parallel mania now or after? Oh, oh, sure, we can talk about it now. Uh, I understand the concept about parallelomania, and it's something that uh, is too easily fallen into by someone who is trying to defend a certain position. Uh, everything becomes a parallel, regardless of how uh, far removed or remote or really it wouldn't convince the average person that this is really an authentic parallel or, in other words, a bullseye. And I've been called on that by various people uh, in different ways over the years. John Welch is one who I've communicated with, and I've sent him various ideas. I've uh, intruded myself in his life, maybe more than he would like. I hope not, but I come up with ideas, and I ship them out to him. And he is a very kind and lovely man and always looks at him and gets back to me. John Twetness, I've also bent his ear. Some things they say, yeah, I think that might be something. Others, they go, no, here's stuff that you don't know that shows that this is not really a very good parallel. So I think that at least with um, the people that I try to communicate with, whose opinions I respect, there is a healthy dose of skepticism that they relate to me, that they're not just going to buy everything that happens to support the Book of Mormon. They're going to look at it rigorously, and they encourage me to do so, and so I try and do that more and more. Yeah, I mean, because that would be my chief, you know, I've I've seen a lot of the arguments before, and my chief objection to, to many of them, I, although I, I do think some of the um, the bullseyes, some of the hits are, are rather interesting, I think a lot of them, you know, f suffer from that, where you take two huge cultures, um, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the stuff that Joseph Smith could have easily drawn on from the 19th century, and and some apologists cast such a wide net, you know, they'll look at you know, the Assyrians and, and just every part, the Egyptians and, and, and huge time spans covering thousands and thousands of years. And, and they'll draw tech parallels in, in, in terms that just look similar, but don't have the same vowels. And, and you start doing that to a great extent. I think you could find the Book of Mormon is sourced in any language or culture if you, if you tried it hard enough. Yes. And I think that, oh, before I go on about, um, chiasmus, because I think that happens a lot with chiasmus as well as in other areas, as you've pointed out. Um, there's a term that just occurred to me that I think I sometimes see on people who uh, are perhaps critics of the Book of Mormon, or at least non-believers of the Book of Mormon. And whereas those who support it sometimes suffer from parallelomania, I think that those who criticize it sometimes suffer from coincidenceomania. <laughs> okay. I just made that up. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Parallel mania was something that Nibley accused a lot of critics of. But, of course, he's been accused by it himself um, quite a bit by both the inside and outside. Um, so I think it's a, it's a sword that cuts both ways. It is, absolutely. And to his credit, I think that Hugh Nibley was, to some degree, uh, self-aware in that regard. Uh, he seemed to be 
extremely humble in his conclusions, always saying that they were tentative. I remember one of the statements he would say frequently is it's, uh, it doesn't necessarily prove anything, but it's all gl- good, clean fun. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm sure we'll get into these issues a little bit more. Why don't we go ahead and jump in? Let, let, let's start with your, your first one. What's your first bullseye? Okay. Well, I will start with what I think is the most impressive bullseye, if I can use that term, and that has to do with Lehi's journey from Jerusalem down to Nahum and then eastward where they end up on the coast at a place called Bountiful in the Book of Mormon. The reason I think that's surprising, and I know that you know everything that I'm talking about, so you just tell me how much detail you want me to go into for your audience. But the thing that's surprising about it is that it's not just, say, one name somewhere that sort of looks like something that's in the Book of Mormon. It's a cluster of concepts that are basically in the right place at the right time according to a reasonable and straightforward reading of the Book of Mormon. When we get over to the New World, the stuff like um, Sorensen has done. Uh, I think that he's done an awful lot of very interesting and thought-provoking work. Having said that, he gets to start anywhere. In other words, there's no starting place where he has to start from. He can pick any place, label it Nephi, and go from there. In the Book of Mormon in the Old World, first Nephi, there is a very specific starting point, and that is Jerusalem. And we all know where that is because it's been there for a long time, clear back to 600 B.C. We know where the starting point is. So that cannot be fudged on for First Nephi. Then they take their trip down the coast or close to the coast of Arabia, down what we understand now to have been the main thoroughfare, the frankincense trail. They go down to a place that is called Nahum. And that is, of course, in distinction to all the different places that ne- uh, excuse me, that Lehi is naming, like for his sons on the way. This is a place that apparently was already called Nahum. He didn't name it. And then they travel almost due eastward, according to the Book of Mormon, until they get to the coast. And then they describe this beautiful, lush place with all sorts of physical characteristics at it, including honey, including iron ore from which they can smelt tools, and set forth on their boat, and they end up in the New World. So the thing that's amazing to me about that is not that the Book of Mormon mentions Jerusalem, but that it actually comes down along what was a trail. There is a place called Nahum, or Nem, and the vowels, as I understand it, not being a an expert on Hebrew, I don't speak Hebrew, I don't speak Egyptian, I barely speak English, but that the vowels are things that um, are much more flexible and oftentimes not written in the ancient scripts from that area of the world. But the N, the H, the M are very clear. Then they've been found on not one, but I believe two and possibly three altars by a German archaeological team in the area that the Book of Mormon would indicate is Nahum. There's a massive graveyard there, which is, of course, significant because the Book of Mormon mentions that's where they buried Ishmael. And then from that point, they travel almost due eastward. They hit the coast, which from the place that was Nahum would be on 
Oman's coast, I believe. And lo and behold, there is a small area which completely different from everywhere else in this huge country, this huge peninsula, is lush and green, has bees make honey, and has iron ore that you don't even have to dig into the ground and do a mine type thing, but it's actually there on the surface and it can be broken off the surface and then smelted in order to make iron tools just the way the Book of Mormon says. So there's all these different things that line up exactly. And I think that if the Book of Mormon were not a religious text, in other words, if it had come forward in any other way than the way Joseph Smith said it came forward, right, with angels giving gold books to farm boys, if it were just something that were out there with no religious connotations to it in the sense that, well, you don't have to accept Mormonism, you don't have to think anything in particular about Joseph Smith's prophetic claims to discuss it, I think that that would be, and is anyway, a significant lineup of locations and circumstances. Yeah, I, I agree. There's um, a couple of impressive hits in there, but I mean, let's... Let's take a, a little look at it from a, a skeptical side. I mean, first of all, we can assume that, that Joseph Smith would have had a map, right? Um, I, I think the evidence is very, very slim that he would have seen um, Nahum or whatever it was on a map. I mean, that's, that's, that's just very, very unlikely. So I think in this whole narrative, that's probably Joseph Smith's biggest, you know, wonder that he got that one right. Um, but, you know, the idea that he followed the coast and then at some point, Turned, uh, turned and headed east, and then hit the hit the other coast. I think I think he could have got that from a map. Now, one of the objections or one of the the criticisms that that, that I tend to levy is there will be things that Joseph Smith got right that people say he should have got wrong, but he actually got right. Um, let me let me phrase that a better way. There are things that would have been in the common assumption. Um, that have later proved to be false, but then we showed that they, they could possibly be. So Joseph Smith said, oh, there was iron there and that he lived into, he had a, you know, a lush place. Well, maybe he just got that one wrong. He just assumed that the peninsula was, was that way. And the fact that it actually wasn't just more kind of is a lucky draw. You know, you read the Bible, you don't necessarily get the sense that those sort of places don't exist. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I want to hurry up to say that I don't think that any of this is going to prove the Book of Mormon <laughs> ancient and thereby authentic to another person necessarily. It's like one of my favorite movies, um, Big Trouble in Little China. Kirk Russell says, uh, hey, hey, I'm a reasonable guy, but I've just experienced some very unreasonable things. <laughs> That's me. I think I'm a reasonable guy. I know I've experienced some very unreasonable things. If I hadn't experienced the unreasonable things that I have, which lead me to a spiritual conviction of the Book of Mormon, then I would just be talking about this as, um, well, that's kind of interesting, and maybe it means that, maybe it means something else. And I hope in this podcast to be able to talk about the Book of Mormon in that way, because I've been a lawyer for 20 years. I know that there is no argument that is so strong that there's not going to be other arguments on the other side of it. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, you know, I think, I think, you know, like you said, to lead this out as the beginning, I think the Nahum one is one of the strongest, um, you know, because you talk about just random probability of getting that sort of location. 
Um, and you know, it is associated with mourning. We, we, we have that connection. Um, so, so I, I think, I think it is an interesting one. All right. And I'll say the other thing about it is that, um, you know, in the Book of Mormon, when it talks about this journey, there is only one place that they describe with a sense of lushness and with honey and in the way that Bountiful does get described in the Book of Mormon. And when you look at one of these satellite photographs of Saudi Arabia, there's just that one tiny place in the entire peninsula that shows green. And that's exactly where the Book of Mormon would indicate, at least it's almost due eastward, I think it's about one degree difference from due east from the location of Nahum across the peninsula, and bam, you hit it. Yes, but it it also doesn't quite say in the Book of Mormon that's where um, they landed. I mean, it doesn't specifically state a place that we can we can link. A lot like you said, there's this, these 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 circumstances that make us believe that that would be the place, and I think that evidence is compelling. But at the same time, it doesn't ever say they were in this space at this uh, latitude and longitude for obvious reasons. No, it does not, and that certainly is true. But, you know, when they found those, that German archaeological team found the altars with the NHM, and apparently referring to someone who's a, a Nemite on the altar, thus giving rise to the speculation, the conclusion, that there is an area bearing that name, since if you've got a Nemite, they're probably, probably from a place called Nem, then that was, I believe, the first instance of what I would call archaeological evidence in support of the Book of Mormon. It is something found by archaeologists. It is a an artifact. It certainly supports the Book of Mormon, and people can argue about what it means and whether it means everything that somebody else thinks it means. But I think that we are at a point now where people cannot really say that there is no archaeological evidence in support of the Book of Mormon anymore. Okay, I, I think that's fair. All right, let's go on to bullseye number two. Well, number two is somewhat related. It has to do with a certain river that got found over there on the peninsula, which has been at least tentatively identified by some people as the River of Laman running through the Valley of Lemuel. I think George Potter is the name of the the fellow who discovered this in the last 10 years or so, maybe a little bit more than that. And uh, the reason that this was surprising is because it seems to have been something completely unexpected to have a river flowing into the Red Sea that is located on the Arabian Peninsula. The reason why I say it's unexpected is because, um, do you know who Josh McDowell is? I've heard the name. Yeah, he's a, a evangelical Christian who writes these books called, you know, proofs, uh, proof that demands a verdict or something in, in support of the um, the New Testament. Uh, he does the fair thing, except for the New Testament and for an evangelical Christian point of view. And he had one of these books, and I remember looking at it, and there was a quote in there from a professor that he had put in there, and it was about the Book of Mormon and why the Book of Mormon's not true, ridiculing the idea that there would be a river. In Saudi Arabia, I believe the professor's name was Gleason Archer, who I think has since passed away. But at the time, he wrote this, and it was quoted in the book, says, there is not and there have never been any rivers in Saudi Arabia. 
So this became quite a surprise when they found this river that flows apparently all year long and evidence that it had been larger in ancient times than it is now flowing through this very deep crevasse between two high mountains of rock and in a place that would qualify, according to the Book of Mormon's description, as to where Lehi and company had traveled to when they found it. I know you're familiar with this. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting because it, it exposes more sort of bad criticism, you know, um, mm -hmm. because to me, um, you know, Joseph Smith, once again, being a 25-year-old guy from upper state New York, might not necessarily have considered the uh, geography and climate of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. So he wrote from, he possibly could have just written from what he knew, which is that there's ri running rivers. Um, so, so yeah, I think this is an interesting one also, you know, um, but th that would be my sort of devil's advocate. Devil's advocacy there is that, you know, if he says that there's rivers that, um, that are continually running, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the uh, apologists are going to look until they find a river that continually runs. Right. And I would say that um, on the other side of that is that this is the one river that is mentioned, I believe. I hope you don't hold me to anything here because <laughs> I could be making mistakes. I'm going off the top of my head on some of this. But I believe this is the only river that is mentioned along the course of their journey after they leave Jerusalem. And to my knowledge, this is just about it in Saudi Arabia as far as rivers go. Yeah, I'd say once again, it's an interesting, it's an interesting get. So, so we'll, we'll chalk that one up for, for, for Joseph. Okay. <laughs> Good well, enough. I, I, should I appreciate say, your fairness. I, I should say, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say chalk it up for Joseph. I should say chalk it up for the Book of Mormon, right? <laughs> <laughs> chalk it up for consigliere. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's, let's move forward. Okay. Um, well, there's the, the issue of cement buildings, of course, in Mesoamerica. Um, that takes first off the assumption of the limited geographical theory or model of the Book of Mormon, which I think, you know, a close reading of the Book of Mormon very clearly says that this is happening in a limited geography. And John Sorensen and others have done that work, but um, it does seem that pretty much the entirety of the Book of Mormon takes place in an area about the size of the state of Pennsylvania, if you were to turn it sideways, so it's longer up and down than it is from side to side. Cement buildings is something that was ridiculed in a rather famous story, at least among apologists, Heber J. Grant, by some fellow who came up to him. He was a well-educated fellow, and questioned him about his belief in the Book of Mormon and how he could believe in a book that talks about cement buildings when there have never been any cement buildings anywhere in America during that time period. And Heber J. Grant, to his credit, says, well, that doesn't affect my testimony one particle. We may not know of any cement buildings today, but I have no doubt that my children or my grandchildren will find them. And that's exactly what happened. There are cement buildings in a plausible location, at least according to Sorensen's model and the limited geographic model in Mesoamerica that I think most uh, Mormon scholars adhere to, though I know that there is still a viewpoint up around the Great Lakes and some even more minority 
viewpoints in other locations. But I think that's the majority viewpoint as it stands today. I think among that scholars, were, that's true. Yeah, among among I, I don't know that it would be a majority opinion on, among many of the faithful, but I, I think it's fair enough to say that among the scholars and people who care about this sort of thing, that's the majority opinion. Yeah, among the Internet Mormons. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not among the chapel Mormons. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say it, but, but you, you did. So. <laughs> but then there's these cement buildings that are there, that were discovered, that are in a, a plausible location, that date to roughly the correct time period, and that appear to be made of cement that is, in many respects, better than the, the cement that we typically put out today. So I know there's two common objections made to this argument. Um, mm -hmm. The first one is that um, when early travelers had encountered the uh, um, Pueblo Indians and you know the uh, the Hopi and those ones down in south southern southeast or southwestern United States, that oftentimes their dwellings were described as cement. Um, and I think there's a letter from either Oliver Cowdery or or one of the other early church leaders that talks about you know the the, the south. The southwestern Indians. So, I mean, it's it's plausible that it's just an idea that Joseph Smith got, and mm -hmm. they also knew about um, Joseph Smith knew about ruins from down in South in Mesoamerica, and he very well could have been just you know riffing on um, you know he saw these buildings called them cement. What? How would you respond to that? Can I ask you this? Chronologically speaking, it is my under. Of course, we both know the Book of Mormon came out in 1830. We can peg that with surety. Once it comes off the press, it's by and large set in stone as to what it says. Right. My understanding is that was the explorer's name Stevenson, who did the trip down to Mesoamerica. He took the fellow with him who made all the sketches, and they were down there for a long period of time. And basically, my understanding is discovering or rediscovering for that generation, at least the. Uh, the ruins that were down there, which were later identified with, uh, I think primarily with uh, the Mayas. Mm -hmm. And then he came back and was celebrated in the Americas, and he published his book, I think, in 1843. And I know that Joseph Smith, when he found out about it, there were some editorials in the Times and Seasons, or whatever the church newspaper was there at that time in Nauvoo. I get it mixed up. Uh in which he talked about how incredible this was and what proof this was that the Book of Mormon was correct. I think that's the context in which he said, it shall be with me as it has been with other prophets. I'll be proven a prophet by circumstantial evidence. Right. Yeah, that sounds so, right. Yeah, my, so my understanding of the chronology is that that book came out, and this really came to public attention about 13 years after the Book of Mormon came off the press. Yeah, I think that's true. And there's a lot of things that, you know, we talk about in terms of Mesoamerica that are very difficult to draw a, a line to saying Joseph Smith knew about these things. I mean, but still, you know, it had been hundreds of years since Cortez. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so those ideas and those thoughts and the, and, and the things that had happened had long been in the general zeitgeist. And I think, you know, it's, 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 it's very likely that Joseph Smith knew about some of that stuff, but to what detail, we don't know. So I, I grant, cement is, is an interesting one. Did you just say zeitgeist? <laughs> yeah. Are you flipping German on me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you that when you get to uh, the new world, I think things do get a bit hazier. I think that John Sorensen did do uh, an awful lot of work and uh, important watershed work back in 1985, I think it was, when his book came out. And 
um, an ancient setting for the Book of Mormon, right. ancient American setting for the Book of Mormon. He did a lot of work on that. I think sometimes that's unfairly reduced to his equation of possible equation of tapirs with deer. <laughs> you know, yes. and I think he did an awful lot of stuff and a lot of interesting work in it. And I'm not going to try and replicate it here. It's certainly subject to differences of opinion, even amongst, you know, Mormon scholars. They will differ about where, even those who think it was Mesoamerica, where they think different things might have occurred. But I do want to mention this, because I think this is interesting. Um, John Sorensen's studies led him to identify the waters of Mormon, mentioned, of course, in the Book of Mormon, with Lake Atitlan in Mesoamerica. And the thing that's interesting about that, I've never been, but I've seen pictures of it. It's an absolutely gorgeous location. The thing that's interesting about it is that he also, in his book, posits that he thinks that the city of Jerusalem was likely on the shores of Lake Atitlan. And then when Jesus comes in Third Nephi, we read about the waters uh, inundating and covering this, uh, this city. So based on that, in 1985, I think it's page 176 of his book, where what he does is he makes a tentative prediction that if he's right about this, that he would not be surprised to find in the future people discovering ruins of an ancient city underneath the waters of Lake Atitlan. And then, of course, and I think it was 2006, so this is uh, 20, 21 years after he puts this prediction in writing, there are some people out there scuba diving. I'm not sure exactly what it was they were doing out there or what they were going out there to do, but they find under the water of Lake Atitlan, evidence of submerged pre-Columbian ruins. I think that is worthy of note because when a person puts out a theory like John Sorensen did with a lot of work, and then it has predictive power behind it, and that prediction actually turns out, it's something that makes me think, you know, maybe he's on to something. Yeah, I mean, the next question would be, BYU's got a lot of money, right? Um, so why don't they go dig? I understand they did that once about 100 years ago with less than stellar results. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and there's the whole uh, Stuart Ferguson, wasn't that his name, Stuart Ferguson um, issue? I where, think so. Um, where he uh, reportedly lost his faith based on his search for... for um, for ancient Nephitish ruins? Yes. And I think that illustrates one of the dangers, and I know you may want to get to this later, about putting one's faith in these types of artifacts. I think it's probably more healthy to look at them as things of interest to recognize that there are arguments on the other side, that we do live in a universe where coincidences do happen, Maybe some of these things are coincidence and not get so wed or wedded to them that if something starts to buckle, we lose our testimony about it. Yeah, I mean, th that's the general problem with, you know, history and archaeology and all that is uh, now I have to be very careful when I say here because there, 
is these things change now they don't mm-hmm. they don't change in the way that a lot of I, I see apologists represent them as changing which is i mean mm-hmm. science builds upon science and it's not like next year they'll reverse all of the all of what they found from before that's that's very unlikely the new theories have to account for the old data but you know think things are in transition and i can see that as a foundation for a lot of people's faith yeah, and that's always dangerous because regardless of the fact that every generation looks at their knowledge as being the final word in all fields like science, like math, like history, like just about anything, if we learn anything from history, it should be that there is no such thing as a final word. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a, there's something that's lost in this too. I think that in past generations, and, and we're not only talking about the LDS church, we're talking across the board, is that prophets and um, those type of people felt, um, I don't know, a little less lawyered up when they uh, would talk about what's going on in the world. Um, they mm-hmm. would they would be willing to make you know brave statements and brave pronouncements. And I, I think that the reliance on archaeological data, however well-meaning, I think sometimes hems in the power of the religious message because people don't want to say things that will get, you know, proven false, even though the underlying message, the underlying core might be based in truth. Yes, and the, and the Mormon Church, or the LDS Church, of course, uh, suffers from that to an acute degree because of its claim that they have prophets, seers, and revelators who lead the church. Yes, absolutely. I was listening. Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but a, a great interview with Elder Oaks on the, the Mormon podcast channel, whatever it's called. Uh, it's called like, um, Reflections or something like that. And he, he actually laments this. And it would be, a, it'd be an awful position that they're in because with the internet and with recording devices and every little word is going to be scrutinized to such a high degree that, um, it's hard to go and start saying things about Mesoamerica, you know? Yes, and I, I, I've got to imagine that there are at least some of them that have an interest in this. I, I think that Elder Maxwell had a great deal of interest in it, and I can imagine his frustration in not being able to talk about any of that publicly. Yes, I get that feeling too. There's sometimes you can, you can sense almost or, or feel that they're, they just, they want to come out and say it. They want to come out and, and be and be clear and not be um, so sort of evasive. And I, I'm being a little strong there, but um, and and you know it's it's got to be difficult. I do not envy their job at all. And on the other hand, when they do stick their neck out even a little bit, like you say, they run the risk of having it cut off by subsequent discoveries. And here I'm thinking, they went. They thought the um, uh, the Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, where it talks about the ships of the sea and the ships of Tarshish. Do you know the verse I'm talking about? Yes, yes. And it ends up that one of those phrases is not in the King James Version, which is based on the Masoretic text, but it does occur in the Septuagint Version, to which very unlikely Joseph Smith had access. And so this was seen as a real evidence that this text is transcending the Isaiah of the Masoretic Version, and including something from the Septuagint to the point that they put it in a footnote in the 1981 version of the Book of Mormon, the one that we still use today. It's there in a footnote. Yes. And then a few years ago, Farms comes out as their Journal of Book of Mormon Studies with an article debunking the idea. 
I, my first reaction to that article was, I don't think I want to read this. <laughs> I like this proof of the Book of Mormon. I don't need to read Mormons debunking it. And I thought, consigliere, what are you talking about? You need to find out what the, the best scholarly evidence is on this, and the best scholarly thinking is on it. And they go through their reasons of saying, you know, this really doesn't amount to a bullseye when you know all the facts. And I read that, and I felt a little bit disappointed at it. And, but then, on the other hand, I thought, you know, this is very important that Farms, in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, is not just towing the faith-promoting rumor line. They are out there. They're really trying to do their best with uh, the scholarship tools that they have, even if it means coming to a conclusion that's different from what has been accepted for a while and that even contradicts a footnote in the 1981 version of the Book of Mormon. So I thought that was a positive step. Well, I agree 100%. I think it's going to buy them credibility in the long run. If you take a look at any other sort of academic endeavor, you know, be it, you know, his, biblical studies or, or, you know, the biology of lichen, um, there is a great deal of disagreement amongst the in-group. And there is that, that, um, back and forth where farms right now has their review of books, but they only review books they don't like. Right. And they only attack books they don't like. And if they can show those sort of dialogues, which I know are going on inside, uh, but there's, I think they're not reticent to, to bring that out to air their dirty laundry, but that will buy them academic credibility in the long run. And I think there's good ideas that they have that get dismissed because of some of the other, um, sort of entrenched behaviors that are, that are circling the wagons, as it were. Mm hmm. All right. And I, I, I agree with you. But I have to add, I have no personal knowledge about anything that goes on in the upper echelons of farms. Yeah, neither do I, but I, that, that doesn't stop me from commenting <laughs> on it. <laughs> All right, enough, enough philosophizing. Let's, let's move forward with, uh, with more uh, bullseyes. Okay, well, there's the whole subject of names in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has a lot of biblical names. It also has a lot of names that are not found in the Bible. And it has a number of names that end up being able to be proven do come from uh, the Middle East and some from Egypt. Of course, the Book of Mormon lays the parameters in the very opening passage that we're looking at something that, if it's going to have connections, it should be to the Jews, by which I would think Hebrew, or the Egyptians. So it doesn't go to the Assyrians. It doesn't go to the Hittites. It doesn't go really beyond that. But it does pinpoint those two groups and those two cultures, and it says, you know, that's where you should be looking if you want to find anything that resembles these names. Um, I have in front of me the somewhat famous letter by William F. Albright. I know you know immediately the letter I'm talking about. From 1966, and William Albright, of course, being not a member of the church, but uh, highly renowned for his knowledge of the Middle East and of things Egyptian at the time. This is in 1966, so I am expecting it was probably toward the end of his career, but he had received a letter from a critic of the church trying to get him to weigh in on how stupid the Book of Mormon is. And he wrote a letter back to this individual and said something that this individual, I think, was not expecting. And he talks about two of the names in the Book of Mormon being Peonkai and Pehoran. And he recognizes Peonk and Pehor 
as being legitimate Egyptian names and says he's somewhat surprised that they are in the Book of Mormon. The quote for him is, uh, I'll read the quote here. Um, as you know, when the Book of Mormon was written, Egyptian had just begun to be deciphered, and it is all the more surprising that there are two Egyptian names, Payank and Pehor, Un, that's in parentheses, the A-N, which appear together in the Book of Mormon in close connection with a reference to the original language as being Reformed Egyptian, unquote. Now, I will tell you, it's pretty obvious to me he hadn't actually read the Book of Mormon himself, because those names do appear in the Book of Mormon. I believe it's in the Book of Helaman, but the Reformed Egyptian is at the other end of the Book of Mormon at the very beginning, as far as I can remember. I don't think it's anywhere in close connection to the two names. And then we find out from Boyd Peterson's, uh, not autobiography, but biography of Hugh Nibley, that apparently it was Hugh Nibley who had pointed it out to William Albright initially. That's where he got the information from. He hadn't stayed up late gleaning the Book of Mormon for Egyptian names himself. But it's always uh, exciting and interesting to find a non-member who is knowledgeable in his field or her field writing things like this. Okay, so I have, a, I have a question about the name, something I've always wondered. I mean, I've seen that argument before with Pahoran and, and that sort of stuff, um, but he doesn't show up in the Book of Mormon until like um, like about 68 B.C. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about 600 years later. Um, right. I, I, I think the argument is, is sort of interesting, but I find it hard to believe since there's not really any archaeological evidence in Mesoamerica or anywhere else in the Americas, for that matter, of any sort of Egyptian, that 600 years later somebody would be pulling up an Egyptian name. Um, you know, so that one's a little bit more of a stretch to me. I hear that from different people. I also hear from Cinepro. I think he brings that up the most frequently that I read. Um, I don't know that I can account at this point uh, with the archaeological data the way it's at. But, um, I mean, your first name is John. I think that's considerably older than 600 years. Well, yeah, but, um, you know, John, that name is also Ivan. And um, and you can go through and look at all the roots of, of all the, the Johns out there. Um, and there's mm -hmm. actually lots and lots of people named John who you wouldn't consider, you know, Gene and, 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 and whatever. So, so you can trace and see this, this, this connection. So languages change over time. And yes. to, to, to pull this out for me and not have some kind of connection back to that, that Egyptian, especially if we're arguing the way some apologists do, that the Book of Mormon people were a small group contained in a larger, sort of traditional Mesoamerican culture, and that they didn't have that much of a cultural influence to, to of course, explain away why there's no real strong archaeological evidence for the religious claims of the Book of Mormon, you know, things like synagogues and that, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's hard to then reverse that and suddenly say, oh, here's this big sign of influence. <laughs> well, you may be right about that. Um, I will suggest as a possible alternative that... Um, my understanding is, is that the plates themselves were kept in probably a priestly line of writers. And my take on what the Book of Mormon says is that it was written in Egyptian characters, but it was the Hebrew language. I know there's some difference of opinion. It's not exactly totally crystal clear what the Book of Mormon is saying about the script in which it was written in the language. 
Um, if that's the case, though, I'm going to have to guess that they had to learn that Egyptian script from somewhere as it was passed along in order to inscribe it on the plates, and perhaps they maintained records for that purpose. My understanding is that Payankai and Pehorin are not just some guys out in the desert of Egypt herding goats, but they are significant characters yeah, I from think... Egyptian history. Okay, yeah. I... And maybe they just lasted longer. Yeah, it, it, it could be. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a possibility. Um, uh, it, it's interesting nonetheless. You know, I, I look at all the names, and this has been brought up, that it, were Joseph Smith to have written the Book of Mormon, um, you know, he would have had to come up with all those names. And I think there's some plausible theories explaining that. But nevertheless, it's, it's a feat, you know. Um, so, so even if you dismiss the Book of Mormon as a 19th century work, I think you have to acknowledge that, that there's some pretty amazing things going on in there, one way or the other. I think amazing. I, I will settle for that. I will settle for amazing. <laughs> How's that? So you've got those names. <clears throat> and then, you know, there's all the whores in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> you mean there, like, there are, you there's mean like a lot core, of whores whore? in the Book of Mormon. The, the core <laughs> whore sort of thing or, 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 or the, the other kind? Well, uh, you know, there's at least one. I think her name was Isabel. But I'm talking about <laughs> the other kind, the... Uh, Corey Hor, Ni Hor, Pei Horan. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to read through it. I almost used to blush when I'd come on these names, you know. I just go, geez, couldn't you come up with something else other than having to say whore over and over again? <laughs> but then, you know, I go on and I find out that in, this was a very common name and a common uh, part of a name in ancient Egypt because, of course, their main deity or one of their main deities was Horus. Right. So whore ends up being something that we find very frequently in Egyptian names. And now I don't feel quite so embarrassed when I read the whore names in the Book of Mormon. Interesting. Now, I notice in your list we haven't talked about um, chiasmus. Is that an admission by choice? Well, no, actually it's not. It's just sort of the way things are, are falling. That was the next thing I have here. There were a couple of other things about Book of Mormon names. We've sort of covered it. I just wanted to mention that recently... There was a publication about all the um, non-biblical Book of Mormon names that have now been found and documented on, I think they are the um, the seals, like from letters that have been preserved, and I think they're called Bully, B-U-L-L-A-E, that's the plural, at least I think that's how it's pronounced. And among those are apparently um, Abish, Aha. And Aha itself is an interesting name because even though it's Hebrew, it's also very Egyptian. It's one of the names of the, um, the, the reputed founder of Egypt. I believe he also had the name Narmer. But Aha was, oh, excuse me, hang on a second. I think Aha was one of his names, and it means warrior in Egyptian. Anyway, there's also Amoniha, Chemish, Haggath, Himni, Isabel, Jerem, Josh, Lurum, Methoni, Methoni Ha, Mulekai, Sam, and Shuli, or Shula. I don't know if the E is silent, but I doubt it. It'd probably be only silent in English. So there's a whole lot of names that have been documented that's actually coming from the Near East, anciently, and that are not in the Bible, but they do find their way into the Book of Mormon. Can I mention one other thing about Book of Mormon names? Sure. Okay, there's actually a couple things I like. <laughs> One is about Ammon. Now, whereas 
core, you know, I didn't have a clue when I was first reading the Book of Mormon when I was 18 years old. That was, you know, an Egyptian deity or that would show an Egyptian connection, at least possibly, if not plausibly. But Ammon, I think pretty much everybody who's watched a, a mummy movie has heard about Ammon in connection with the Egyptians. Well, Ammon ends up being all over the Book of Mormon, not just, of course, in the guy who cuts off the arms, but there are other Ammons not so well known. And then there are other places and other names in which Ammon is included as a part of the name, like, um, there, well, there's Ammonihah, of course. There's Amnihu, where you've got the A, the M, and the N as the prefix. And then you've got the very famous Heel Ammon that we know from the Book of Mormon. And I understand that there is a, a, the L and the R sort of go back and forth between Egyptian and Hebrew, kind of like it might between English and Japanese. I think of that because that's where I served my mission. And they have trouble with, um, the R's. Right. So they, they sort of make it a bit of a different sound. But my understanding is, is that H-E-R-A-M, O-N or U-N is, uh, is an Egyptian name or word or translates into Egyptian because I don't want to overstate the case. That would mean beloved of Ammon. And so you got Helaman, which is not just one person, but more than one person, I think two people of significance in the Book of Mormon, the father and then his son, both with that name. Yeah, I, I think I think names are interesting. Like I said, um, but you know, my my objection would be to resurrect our parallelomania thing. And mm-hmm. you know, I my undergraduate degree was in linguistics, and the, the and the the objection I've offered to other apologists before is if you find all these ties between, say, the Book of Mormon words and the Egyptian words, those aren't interesting unless you establish in the null case because. For example, we know in the United States there was enough contact with Indians that there are Indian names all over everywhere for, for all sorts of things. So I, what I would like to see, for example, is to take these names and compare them to, say, Iroquois, because those are names that Joseph Smith might have encountered just in his dealings, and see, mm-hmm. do you have uh, the same sort of lineup as you would with the Egyptian names? Is there the same level of parallel? Or is it statistically significant, a lineup with... Um, with Egyptian, and I've never seen an, an apologist argue for statistical significance. So I, I think it's an interesting argument, but to me, until that base case is made, it's not so compelling. I think that's an excellent idea for a study. <laughs> I'll, I'll get on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finally, one other name, okay. if I can, you bet. which is Mulek. And that is of interest because, of course, in the Book of Mormon, he's presented as being the sole surviving son of King Zedekiah after the purge by the Babylonians where they kill his other sons right before they put his eyes out. Right. In Jeremiah 38, 6, in the King James Version, it talks about, quote, well, it talks about the, quote, dungeon of Malchiah, the son of Hamalek. But the Hebrew name here, which is Malkayahu ben Hamalek, should be translated, according to the paper I'm looking at, 
<laughs> Malchi Yahu, son of the king. So that being in Jeremiah's time, who's of course a contemporary of Zedekiah, raises the possibility that this is a son of King Zedekiah, by excuse me, by the name of Malchi Yahu, which still isn't too close to Mulek until you look into the theophoric suffix. And I know you've got to know what that is. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember. Okay. Hey, I would have known it either except I was doing some prep work for the show. So the theophoric suffix is the idea that in Hebrew, frequently you've got a, a Yahoo at the end of your name. I'm sorry, it sounds funny in English. Anyway, like you've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, you've got all these people who have that, um, basically Jehovah mm-hmm. at the end of their name. And that can be added or dropped, I think, if it's more formal, if it's less formal. You get rid of the theophoric suffix, and what you're left with is Malchi, which is M-A-L-K-I. You've got the letters, the consonants, M-L-K, minus the theophoric suffix. And that is the son of the king, possibly um, King Zedekiah from the Bible, in a passage that I don't think we could reasonably expect Joseph Smith or any of his contemporaries to look at that and get Mulek out of it in the way that I've just talked about. Yeah. The reason I think this is significant is we've got another non-Mormon uh, guy who's supposed to know what he's talking about, Department of Archaeology at Tel Aviv University, Yohanan Aharoni. It always cracks me up when I look at his name because it sounds like it belongs in the Book of Mormon and he's Jewish. <laughs> and he says, quote, Malchi Yahu is a common name and was even born by a contemporary son of King Zedekiah. So that ends up being strikingly, I would say, uh, potentially and strikingly uh, confirmation of what the Book of Mormon says, is they've got the son of King Zedekiah, whose name's Mulek, and he's got this whole group of people named after him called the Mulekites. Yeah, I think I think that one's intriguing. I think that one's up there on par with the the Nanehome one, one of those that, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty unlikely that you could just make that stuff up. Well, I tried to save only the best for your show. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. You know, I know that we're starting to run out of time, and that is pretty much um, that's pretty much everything that I had called for presentation here. If I could say one other thing about it, the thing about the Book of Mormon is is that I have actually read that book over thirty times now, and that's a calculation. I haven't actually you know counted every time and kept record of it, but I think over thirty times I have read the Book of Mormon now. And what I find is that I keep seeing new things in the Book of Mormon, not just as I get older, hopefully more mature, more life experience under my belt, but as I learn more about the ancient world, other scholars see things. There's John Welch, there's John Twetness, there's David Bokovoy, and I hope I am pronouncing his last name correctly, otherwise he's going to come and beat me up. I always just read it. I don't know how to pronounce it either. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Benjamin McGuire, uh, you know, those are the two new kids on the block, I think, doing a lot of significant research, seeing a lot of significant old-world connections with the Book of Mormon as the scholarship increases. And what I often think to myself is the Book of Mormon has no 
business yielding more and more insights to better and better educated scholars over a wide array of disciplines. If the Book of Mormon were really just Dick and Jane on steroids, I would expect the trajectory to be in the other direction. And the fact that it is an early 19th century production would become plain on its face. Another way I look at it is that shallow rivers are the first to dry up. But after 180 years in print, I find personally, I have yet to plumb the depths of the Book of Mormon. The minute I think I understand everything it's saying, I have only to read it again to find out I'm wrong. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with that assessment, even from my perspective. I, I would say I find the Book of Mormon to be um, maddeningly intriguing in that, to me, some things are very compelling and very interesting, and other things are just inane in the book. And, and um, mm-hmm. you know, when we take this sort of, you know, archaeological view, I think, you know, there, there's some things that are just very interesting and very unlikely that Joseph Smith, or even if you want to extend it out to people like Sidney Rigdon, would have been able to come up with these, 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 these ancient connections. But at the same time, there's problems like the Dudo Isaiah problems and, and, you know, other big textual problems. So, so I think the book, in a sense, the, the, it's like we pile, um, stones on the one side of the balance, but every time we put one on that side, we put one on the other and it almost hangs in balance. And I know there's a lot of Mormons who theorize that that's what it's supposed to do, that that's what God wants. He wants it to not be proven until the time comes, I suppose. Yeah, I, I don't know what's in God's mind <laughs> pretty much any day of the week. So I certainly don't know about that. I will tell you that I concede readily that there are very strong arguments to made, be made on the other side of the equation. Um, but having conceded that much, I think it's remarkable that we've got the rocks that we do have over on this side of the equation. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And, you know, I've met and talked to a lot of ex-Mormons. I'm, I'm sure there's some out there who've left over the Book of Mormon, but they're very mm-hmm. rare. Most most people who leave the church do so for social reasons or because of the church history. Um, you know, more more problems with Brigham Young and Joseph Smith than with the actual text of the Book of Mormon. And I, I think the Book of Mormon becomes a reflection. You know, once people leave the church, they, they gravitate towards the negative arguments. People in the church gravitate towards the positive arguments. Um, so, so I don't think it's as, as influential in that people coming in and out of the church as some people might give it credit for. And I think that's partly because of the balance and partly because of what people see in it. I agree. I spent a lot of years trying to come up with an airtight case in favor of the Book of Mormon and then realized it can't be done. There's too much countervailing evidence to come up with a slam-dunk case for the Book of Mormon. And I think it's much more healthy for me personally to acknowledge the arguments on the other side and say, yep, you've got a point, yep, you've got a point, just the way that you've been courteous enough to acknowledge on some things. Well, you know, yeah, that is a point in, for Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon. Uh, there are points on the other side, and that cannot be denied. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And... um I know that the Book of Mormon is very meaningful, you know, to many people, and many people get a lot of things out of it. And, um, um, and you know, I, 
the 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 Book of Mormon is interesting on so many levels. You know, there's there's things in in the Book of Mormon that don't quite jive with modern Mormonism, and that's compelling in and of itself. You know, uh, um, there's things that didn't quite jive with what Joseph Smith was saying, and that's another compelling argument. You know, if if um, and I'm not saying an argument for or against. It's just something that's out there about the book. I think the the book has yet to be fully. Um, dealt with by by scholars both inside and outside the church the challenge that i have with the book of mormon is leaving my preconceptions about what mormon doctrine is behind me when i read it so i can try to the best of my ability to understand what the authors or author of the book of mormon is trying to say on his own terms without trying to make it square with mormon doctrine well, I, I think that's a great point, and I think that as Mormonism matures, I think we're starting to get to that point where we can do that without trying to read, you know, Gordon Hinckley or, or read Thomas Monson into the Book of Mormon to say, well, what exactly does it say, and what doesn't it say? You know, what doesn't it say about something like uh, <laughs> the role of temples? You know, and 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 just consider that on its own without having to defend it. I think that'll help us um, probably gain more from what's what's what was what the intent of the book was. Can I give you a quick example? You bet. Alma 34, and I think it might be verse 34. It's where Amulek's talking. And he talks about uh, the spirit that possesses this body at the time of death will have power to possess it in that eternal world. You cannot have that scripture read in the Mormon church without the interpretation that goes along with it, which is it's talking about our own spirits that are in our body, and then we possess our body in that eternal world, and then it's turned into a homily about how that's why we have to control our appetites and desires here, because it's going to be the same spirit that possesses that body then. I'm sure you've heard that many times. Yes. I read it once, and this has been about 20 years ago now, that I read it, and I realized that has nothing to do with what Amulek is saying. <laughs> this was a huge turning point for me. There's been many turning points along the way. This was a huge turning point for me. If you read it in context and just let Amulek say what he's trying to say, he's saying something very different. He's saying there are two spirits that exist, the spirit of God and the spirit of the devil. And at the time you die is fish or cut bait time because the spirit that possesses your body at the time you die, whether of God or of the devil, is a spirit that will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. Interesting. And once you understand that, yeah, it's almost impossible to go back and read the passage again and come to any other conclusion because it's so obvious on the face of it. Those are the only two spirits he's talking about. He's not talking about our personal spirits. I don't think there's any place in the Book of Mormon that does talk about our personal spirits. He's talking just about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the devil, but we don't get to that very easily because in some ways that's, that's contrary to what standard Mormon doctrine tells us. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, you know, once again, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be plumbed there. Well, Consig, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Um, we'll have to have you come back. I know there's a lot more of, of these sort of things that you've spent a lot of time thinking on, and you still remain my favorite uh, Sunday school teacher, even if they've released you. 
That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.